Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for our children under 13. Earlier today, nine-year-old Michaela Garrett was taken from the Rainbow Market in Hayward. An eyewitness described the suspect as a male in his 30s with a mustache. He was driving a burgundy-colored sedan. Why did you turn it off? I'm sick of the news. If it's not one child, it's another. Feels like children are disappearing everywhere these days. You know, I was just at the Rainbow Market a few days ago. What's the world coming to? I can't even imagine what the parents must be feeling right now. Let's hope we never have to. On Saturday the 19th of November, 1988, nine-year-old Michaela Joy Garrett and her friend, Katrina Rodriguez, took their scooters to the local corner market. They shopped for snacks and treats, then started walking home, planning out the rest of their day. Suddenly, they realized that they had left their scooters behind. Michaela ran back to the parking lot, only to notice that her scooter had been moved. It was now leaning against a car, right next to the driver's side door. She reached for her scooter. And a young, scraggly man opened the door, grabbing Michaela, and threw her into his vehicle in broad daylight, rapidly driving away. The Bay Area was shaken by the news, but this case would soon be seen as only one among many. Since the 1970s, San Francisco authorities estimate that more than 250 missing children cases have been opened and remain open to this day. High-profile abduction and murders of children became more commonplace just before Michaela herself was abducted. Given the sheer volume of kidnapping around San Francisco at the time, it's unsurprising that over 30 years later, the identity of her kidnapper has never come to light. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. 
This is our episode on Michaela Joy Garrett, a nine-year-old from Hayward, California, who was abducted from her local corner store. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Very little pre-abduction information exists about Michaela Joy Garrett, and even less seems to be available about her family. From what we could gather, Michaela's mother, Sharon, remembers her daughter as happy and full of energy. Up until Michaela's disappearance, Sharon was particularly protective of her firstborn. Sharon wanted to be with her child all of the time. It was difficult for her to let Michaela leave home alone. In tragic irony, Michaela's trip to the Rainbow Market with her friend was a rare instance when Sharon allowed Michaela to leave her sight. When looking at the neighborhood the Garretts lived in, it's easy to see why Sharon was so protective. Hayward, California, is the sixth largest city in the Bay Area. According to recent crime statistics, Hayward boasts an unfortunate violent crime rate higher than 88% of all other cities in the United States. On Saturday, November 19, 1988, Michaela was thrown into the backseat of a stranger's car and... Like with any missing person's case, the clock started ticking. Michaela's friend, Katrina Rodriguez, ran into the Rainbow Market and begged the cashier, Rona Renolan, to call the police. The police were on the scene within minutes and quickly interviewed Rona, letting Katrina go. Can you describe the man? Well, uh... I saw a man hanging outside the store earlier. Thought he was going to rob me or something. He gave me the creeps. Details, ma'am. What'd he look like? I don't know. He was white. Looked in his 30s. Maybe had a mustache. I saw him earlier. What about the car? Get any plates? No. I think it was a dark color, though. Maybe burgundy? The kid might know something. We'll check up on her after we're done here. Maybe because Katrina was young or perhaps in shock, law enforcement didn't speak to her until nearly 48 hours later. Despite this mix-up, the abduction of Michaela Joy Garrett went from a local issue to a national effort almost overnight. On Sunday, November 20th, the day after her kidnapping, the FBI sent six investigators to assist local efforts. Why the FBI took immediate action in a local kidnapping isn't clear, but there is a chance they believed Michaela's disappearance was related to another investigation. If that was the case, they didn't make their intentions known. The FBI managed to keep their progress in the investigation hidden. Even then, rumors spread that they had been able to acquire an impression of an adult's palm print from Michaela's scooter. However, when asked by reporters to verify the rumor, both the FBI and Hayward police refused to comment. 
neither confirming nor denying the existence of the palm print. As the FBI worked secretly, the police and media publicly followed the wrong lead for two days. Officers and media outlets circulated the sketch of a suspect that didn't exist and a car that didn't matter, based off Rona's statements. When police finally spoke to Katrina, they immediately realized the mistake they had made by only interviewing a second-hand source and rushed to get the correct description to the public. According to Katrina, the man who took her friend was between the ages of 18 to 35 years old, with pockmarked skin, long blonde hair, and a white t-shirt. To top it all off, she revealed that the man's car had actually been golden or tan in color. This mix-up was costly. The crucial first 48 hours had passed. Michaela could have been anywhere by that time. With the updated and correct description of the suspect, the investigation began in earnest. Law enforcement performed a thorough check on any sex offenders in the area. They also checked the sketch of the suspect against a database of known criminals. This preliminary search yielded limited results. Only a few men were ever interviewed as potential persons of interest. Out of all of them, police either didn't have enough evidence to convict or had to contend with alibis. These interviews had all been dead ends. After eliminating all potential local suspects, the Hayward police expanded the search. Volunteers took to the streets, papering Hayward with over 40,000 flyers of Michaela's picture and description. Michaela's photo was featured on milk cartons, and her story was told on America's Most Wanted and other television programs. Sharon Murch, Michaela's mother, even appeared on television with a desperate plea for her daughter's kidnapper. Michaela, honey, if you're listening, I love you. I love you and we're praying for you. And even though I don't know where you are physically, you're with me in my heart. And to the man who took you from us, I beg you, bring back my daughter. Drop her off on a street corner, just somewhere she can find her way back home to us, please. <laughs> Within a week of her disappearance, Contra Costa County law enforcement had expanded the search from Hayward to the surrounding hills and canyons of the Bay Area. They pulled out all the stops and assembled teams of men on horses, packs of bloodhounds, and lines of volunteers to comb areas of interest. Desperate to find some trace of Michaela or her kidnapper, police even commissioned a helicopter fitted with infrared cameras to circle the most secluded sections of wilderness in the hills. The infrared only spotted the occasional animal. No sign of Michaela. We don't have exact dates, but in the weeks and months following Michaela's kidnapping, the Missing Children's Project sent out over 50 million mailing cards to various U.S. households in an effort to get more eyes looking for Michaela. These mailing cards resulted in an overwhelming sea of tips and rumors. Law enforcement had their work cut out for them, Yet even in this tidal wave of information, only one lead stood out, and it came from an unexpected source, Indiana inmate Roger Haggard. In December of 1992, four years after Michaela's abduction, Haggard wrote a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle, claiming that he had helped a friend bury Michaela's body near the Hunter's Point area of the Bay Area. 
The FBI took the claim seriously and interviewed Haggard shortly after his admission. However, investigators began to question Haggard's sincerity when he changed his story to an alternate location in Union City. Despite the lack of credibility, the FBI flew Haggard from Indiana to California where he would spend eight hours wandering around an empty field before admitting that he had lied. Haggard said that he had only done it to give some peace to the family. Unamused by Haggard's story, a judge added a further six and a half years to Haggard's original 11-year prison sentence for burglary. Haggard was then ordered to pay nearly $7,000 to Sharon Garrett, since the judge reasoned that the emotional distress caused by this lie was incalculable. The incident with Roger Haggard was only one frustrating lead of the many to come. By 1994, nearly six years after Michaela's abduction, it was reported that investigators had followed up on over 15,000 leads, though none panned out. As the years passed, the Garrett family suffered serious emotional and psychological trauma from the loss of Michaela. Despite any hope that they might have had, this grief took a toll on the Garrett household. Did you read? The Giants are thinking about rebuilding the team this year. Honey? Probably won't matter. Almost moved to Florida a few years ago. Can you even imagine? Just stop. The New York Giants, to the San Francisco Giants, to the Florida Giants. What a disgrace. Stop! We can't keep pretending this is okay. My baby, our baby is gone. Six years today, nothing. She could still be out there. You don't believe that. I do. And if you don't, then maybe there's no room for you anymore. Sharon, it's time to move on. Then move on. I won't stop you, but I will never forget my baby. While no specific report verifies the how, why, or even when of the divorce, Sharon Murch and her husband separated in the years following Michaela's disappearance. And it's not surprising. Even with three other children, Sharon had been devastated by the loss of her firstborn. It wasn't just the Garrett family that was suffering. Several other Bay Area families had lost their children to abductions in the preceding years. There was no shortage of suspects for these crimes, but one in particular stood out. We'll take a closer look at this suspect after this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, back to the story. 
On November 19, 1988, nine-year-old Michaela Joy Garrett was abducted from her local corner store. Her case had very few leads, but one suspect stood out. For this man's privacy, we will refer to him using the pseudonym Grant McCannon. Grant McCannon was a married sewage plant worker from the Bay Area, and he had already gained a small amount of notoriety by the time of Michaela's disappearance in 1988. He had repeatedly displayed an unhealthy obsession with young girls and had made a bad habit of inserting himself into missing persons investigations. Grant had become a person of interest in at least five known child abductions. He first appeared on law enforcement's radar in the late 70s and early 80s. Several parents in his neighborhood had complained to police about disturbing birthday greetings he had sent to their daughters. The notes were written backwards and had to be held up to a mirror in order to be read. When confronted by authorities about these cards, Grant claimed the greeting cards were simply kind gestures. He said he had sent them because he believed the girls were lonely. Grant's actions were both inappropriate and creepy, but not illegal. However, Grant became a person of interest for the first time when he visited the gravesite of Angela Bugai, a five-year-old who had been abducted and murdered in 1983. According to true crime novelist John Philpin, Grant actually stopped by the home of Angela's parents and told them that he had paid their daughter's grave a visit. He was eventually cleared of suspicion in Angela's case when another suspect confessed. However, unable to stay out of the limelight, Grant once again became a person of interest after the disappearance of seven-year-old Amber Schwartz Garcia in June of 1988. Three days after Amber's abduction, Grant visited her mother, Kim. Can I help you? Are you Kim? Kim Garcia? I'm sorry, what is this about? I can't imagine what you must be going through. I heard on the news what happened to your daughter, Amber, and I wanted to offer my assistance. If you need anything, anything at all, please let me know. So you're an investigator? Just a concerned citizen. I'm not sure how you can help, but thank you for the offer. Oh, I think you'd be surprised. Put off by the unusual offer to help, Kim went to the investigators and detailed what had happened. Law enforcement officials suggested that Kim maintain a quasi-friendship with Grant. Nearly six months later, Grant approached Michaela Garrett's mother, Sharon, and made the same strange offer of assistance. This was when investigators began to seriously consider Grant's connection to several missing Bay Area girls. Over the years, suspicious armchair detectives have compiled news sources that tracked Grant's activity. This omnibus source suggests that in the late 80s, he sent a letter to law enforcement with the bold claim that the next girl to go missing would be around nine years old. Michaela was nine at the time of her disappearance. The same source also suggests that in 1990, Grant sent a letter to an FBI profiler with an image that depicted a young girl holding up four fingers. This prediction, if that's what it was, would soon become even more meaningful. On December 27, 1991, Amanda Nicole Eileen Campbell went missing from her neighborhood in Fairfield, California. 
She was four years old. She was also the fourth missing girl Grant was suspected of taking. Even with the odd coincidences and unsettling connections, nothing more than circumstantial evidence was ever found connecting Grant to any of the abduction cases. Grant's penchant for inserting himself into police investigations and playing mind games with families and authorities alike has made his name synonymous with child abductions in the Bay Area. It was only a matter of time until someone pointed a finger. It is this reporter's opinion that the involvement of one Grant McCannon cannot be overlooked in the disappearance of children throughout the East Bay Area. It is shocking that this man has not been brought to justice and continues to spread fear and pain throughout our community. Eventually, the town of Fairfield, California, used Grant's name in connection with the string of child abductions. The ensuing public backlash against Grant was so great, Grant and his family were vilified and harassed. This was a step too far, and Grant took advantage of it. In 1997, Grant sued the city of Fairfield for defamation of character and won. To this day, unspoken or not, he is still considered by many to be an important suspect in the Michaela Joy Garrett case, as well as several others, even though no solid evidence can be used to link him to these cases. And to be fair, Grant McCannon wasn't the only potential suspect in the abduction of Michaela. In fact, while Grant was being investigated, another strong contender came to light. In 1994, a 35-year-old man named Kyle Allen Raymer was arrested for molesting a 7-year-old girl from San Jose. Kyle Raymer had been living on the streets. During a rainstorm, a woman had taken pity on him and invited him to spend the night with her family and take shelter from the rain. Raymer slept in their daughter's bedroom while the daughter slept in her parents' room. However, that night, while Raymer was sleeping, his hosts watched America's Most Wanted and saw Raymer's mugshot. He was wanted for multiple counts of child molestation. Luckily, Raymer had not had a chance to harm his host's children, and they called the police immediately after seeing Raymer's face on television. When Raymer was arrested, the police did a background check and found that he was on parole after being charged with the molestation of a six-year-old girl at a nudist camp. And before that, Raymer had been charged with attempted kidnapping after trying to snatch and grab a 10-year-old girl in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Under California's three-strikes law, Raymer was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. However, his track record had drawn the attention of the investigators on Michaela Joy Garrett's case. Kyle Raymer was a repeat sex offender whose victims of choice were girls around the same age as Michaela. He was operating and living near where Michaela had been abducted, and he matched the description witnesses had given of Michaela's abductor. He had even been caught attempting to abduct a girl in the past. He seemed like the perfect suspect. However, after the investigators' hopes were raised, they soon discovered that Kyle Raymer had an airtight alibi. He had been in prison at the time of Michaela's abduction. Their perfect suspect turned out to be entirely unrelated to Michaela's disappearance. Investigators were back to square one. But not for long. In 1999, 
Another child abduction rocked the Bay Area and unearthed a lead that made waves in the Garrett case. On December 9, 1999, seven-year-old Ziana Fairchild was reported missing on her way home from school in Vallejo, California. Much like in Michaela's case, police had no strong leads or evidence to track down her kidnapper. This man likely would never have been found. But then, on August 12th of 2000, a man named Curtis Dean Anderson kidnapped an eight-year-old girl named Mitzi Sanchez. Anderson sexually abused Mitzi and chained her to the inside of his car with a thick padlock. Anderson put blankets in the windows of his car so people couldn't see Midsey inside. He even pleasured himself while watching news reports of Midsey's mother crying for the safe return of her daughter. After two days of imprisoning Midsey, Anderson got out of the car to watch television, but left the keys to the padlock in his car. Midsey grabbed the keys, unlocked the lock, climbed out the window of the car, and ran away. After Midsey found her way home, she told her story to the police, and they quickly arrested Anderson on suspicion of kidnapping, murder, and child molestation. While imprisoned, Anderson felt the impulse to brag about all his crimes. Now, more than ever, listener discretion is advised. The next section contains continued discussion of crimes against children. I drugged her and, well, you know. Deal the cards, Anderson. I gotta live with you. I ain't gotta like it. There was something about it, you know? The power over someone like that. She was just so small and helpless. Seriously, you're creeping me out. Even filmed the whole thing. I strangled her after it was done. Held her up like a little rag doll. One more word, Anderson. I'm warning you. Just deal the damn cards. Killed 15 just like her. They think they know me. They've barely scratched the surface. All right, freak. I warned you. Anderson, a serial offender, was sentenced to over 250 years for the abduction and sexual assault of Midsy Sanchez. Then, from 2001 to 2005, Anderson was tried and found guilty of the murder of Ziana Fairchild, the seven-year-old girl who had gone missing in 1999. Anderson would then be sentenced to a further 50 years in jail, bringing his total to over 300 years behind bars. According to his cellmate, Anderson liked to talk. In the years following his conviction, Anderson claimed that he was like the infamous serial killer Ted Bundy and had actually left a great many dead bodies in unmarked graves over the years. In December of 2007, before law enforcement could properly investigate all of his claims, Anderson died from unknown causes in his jail cell. Of course, not all investigations were halted by Anderson's death. In 2009, law enforcement closed the case on the abduction and murder of Amber Jean Schwartz Garcia, the seven-year-old girl who had been kidnapped and murdered in 1988. Investigators shared with reporters that they had been following up on Anderson's stories. In particular, a vivid account of how he had kidnapped, sedated, and murdered Amber before leaving her on a stretch of desert highway in Arizona. Despite a lack of hard evidence, investigators were unable to refute Anderson's story. 
Many people, including Amber's mother Kim, believed Anderson was the only true suspect in Amber's murder. Since he was a man who had nothing left to lose, they felt it was appropriate to take his confession at face value. Given his numerous confessions, Curtis Dean Anderson became a suspect in the disappearance of Michaela Joy Garrett as well. Anderson was 26 or 27 years old when Michaela was abducted. This placed him well within the age range of the suspect witnesses reported at the time of Michaela's abduction. In 1989, a year after Michaela's disappearance, Anderson was pulled over by law enforcement and ticketed for an unknown reason. At the time, Anderson was driving a brown 1977 Chevy sedan, a car that was eerily similar to the one seen by the primary witness in Michaela's abduction. The abduction also fit Anderson's M.O. to a T. Given that he would have been the right age at the time, driving the right type of car and kidnapping girls in the same area as Michaela, it seems entirely possible that Curtis Dean Anderson was the man responsible for her disappearance. Yet, with his death in 2007, and no concrete evidence linking Anderson to the crime, this theory is entirely speculation. While it's possible that Anderson abducted Michaela, we may never know for sure. Of course, Anderson is only one of many potential suspects. Another suspect would first be considered in 2009, Then, two of the most depraved criminals in California's history would actually provide some hope for finding answers. We'll investigate these other suspects after this. And now, back to the story. On August 24, 2009, over 20 years after Michaela Garrett's disappearance, a middle-aged man walked onto the University of California at Berkeley campus with two little girls trailing behind him. The man approached event coordinator Lisa Campbell and campus police officer Allison Jacobs with a request. How can I help you, sir? I'm here to inquire about holding an event on campus. All right. Are these little cuties going to be there? Please forgive them. They're shy. So, uh, Miss Campbell, how would one go about scheduling that event? I'll just need you to fill out a few forms for me. Why don't I just tell you about the event? It's predominantly religious in nature. Will that be a problem? Not necessarily. I'll still need some information. I'm the founder of God's Desire Church. I'm sure you've seen the website I run. That's nice, sir, but you'll still have to sign some... I am God's chosen servant. How about this? We'll set you an appointment for tomorrow. How does that sound? Adequate. I just need a name for the appointment. Philip Garrido. I'll be back tomorrow. Who was that? I don't know, but he freaked me out. Can you run a background check? Sure. I'll see what I can find. On August 24th, 2009, Philip Garrido walked onto the UC Berkeley campus with two little girls. He spoke with special events manager Lisa Campbell, who felt that he had appeared to be erratic and strange. University police officer Allison Jacobs agreed that Garrido had been acting strangely and ran a background check. 
She quickly discovered that Garrido was both a suspected pedophile and had served just over 11 years of a 50-year sentence for the kidnapping and rape of 25-year-old Catherine Calloway Hall in 1976. After Garrido's shocked parole officer was informed of the situation, Garrido was taken in for questioning. Along with the two girls, Garrido also brought their mother, Alyssa, who claimed that Garrido was protecting her and her two children from an abusive relationship. Something about Garrido and Alyssa's stories didn't sit well with police, and after further questioning, Garrido finally cracked. The woman he had introduced as Alyssa was actually J.C. Lee Dugard. J.C. was a 29-year-old woman who had gone missing in 1991 when she was only 11 years old. She had been missing for nearly 18 years. J.C. was taken as she walked to her school bus on the morning of June 10, 1991, by Philip and his wife, Nancy Garrido. Garrido at first held her in a soundproof shed, and J.C. was eventually moved to a tent in the Garrido's backyard. During her captivity, J.C. had one daughter when she was 14 and another when she was 17. Both were fathered by Garrido. In handling the case of J.C. Dugard, investigators failed at every turn. For some reason not disclosed by the California justice system, parole officers believed that Garrido should be classified as a low-level offender. This classification allowed him to escape detection and get away with his crimes for the better part of two decades. In 2002, one of J.C.'s daughters injured her shoulder and the fire department arrived on the scene to treat her. Yet, the fire department did not find anything odd about the home. In 2006, one of Garrido's neighbors called 911 on him, telling law enforcement that there were children living in tents in Garrido's backyard. A deputy sheriff arrived and spoke to Garrido, citing him for a code violation, but the sheriff did not press the issue any further. The sheriff also failed to report the presence of children to Garrido's parole officer. After Garrido's arrest, law enforcement publicly apologized for their mishandling of the case and the gross misclassification of Garrido as in need of only low-level supervision. However, friends and family of Michaela were rather unconcerned by the apology from law enforcement. Instead, they were invested in the appearance of Philip Garrido himself. Garrido's capture was televised, and when Katrina, Michaela's friend who had witnessed the abduction, saw both Garrido and Garrido's car, her heart dropped. Her memory had somewhat faded in the 20 years since Michaela's abduction, but Garrido's car looked very similar to the car that Katrina had remembered. Katrina also insisted that a photo of the young Garrido looked incredibly similar to the police sketch made of the suspect at the time of the abduction. This suspicion from the key witness brought Philip and Nancy Garrido to the top of the suspect list for the abduction of Michaela Garrett. Both of them were subjected to extensive interviews and pressed about any potential involvement in the crime. Please state your names for the record. Philip Garrido, and this is... I need her to state her own name. Go on. Nancy Garrido. Why are we here, Detective? I thought the state of California was done with us. 
You have both been deemed persons of interest in the abduction of Michaela Joy Garrett. Come now, officer. God's will is mysterious, but you can't blame us for every missing child. Oh, yes, they can. Where were you both on Saturday, November 19th, 1988? That was a long time ago. We could have been anywhere, I suppose. We have it on file that Mr. Garrido was transferred out of uh, Nevada State Pen to parole authorities in Contra Costa on August 26, 1988. Michaela went missing only a month later. Strange coincidence. It sounds like you're grasping at straws. Your home in Antioch is only 55 miles from Michaela's home in Hayward. Or is that just another coincidence? There are plenty of other individuals that live between us and her. Others with your record? I doubt it. If you aren't going to talk, then we'll just have to wait until you remember something. Both Philip and Nancy Garrido are facing life in prison for the years they took away from J.C. Dugard. To this day, neither have admitted guilt in the case of Michaela Joy Garrett. However, Michaela's mother, Sharon, managed to find hope in this horrific situation. She reasoned that if J.C. Dugard could still be found alive after 18 years, there was a chance that Michaela was still out there. Unfortunately, not every suspect allowed for such hope. In 2012, three years after the arrest of the Garridos, two new suspects would be connected with the abduction of Michaela. Wesley Howard Shermantine and Lauren Joseph Herzog, better known as the Speed Freak Killers, were two serial killers who operated in the Bay Area from 1984 to 1999. These two men were definitely proven to be connected with four murders, but are suspected of committing several dozen more. They killed for the thrill of killing and often committed their crimes while high on methamphetamine. Sherman Tyne and Herzog used several brutal methods to kill their victims. For example, in November of 1998, Cindy Vander Heiden, the two men's last victim, approached Sherman Tyne and Herzog in a bar. My friend said you two knew how to party. That true? Maybe. Why? You want something to drink? Just the drugs. My buddy offered you a drink. You take him up on that offer or we don't got business together. I'll have a beer, thanks. You finish that. Have a chat with us and we'll take care of you. As long as you can pay. Of course I can pay. Good to hear. We get what we want one way or another. Cheers. Instead of drugs, Cindy met a violent end. When she followed the two men to their vehicle, Shermantine pulled a knife on her in an attempt to force her to perform oral sex. When Cindy resisted, Shermantine beat her, then cut her throat open with his knife. In March of 1999, four months after the attack, Shermantine and Herzog were arrested and charged with Cindy's murder when police found her blood in Shermantine's vehicle. Given the brutal nature of the murder, police forced Herzog to confess. He was sentenced to 78 years in prison. Unfortunately, this police coercion was unconstitutional, and Herzog's prison sentence was reduced to 14 years behind bars. In 2010, shortly before Herzog was due to be released, his former partner, Shermantine, claimed that he and Herzog were responsible for more murders than the authorities had ever imagined. I saw a sketch a few days back. It was on a wanted poster for some missing kid. Michaela Joy something? Garrett? Michaela Garrett? 
Do you know something? Know something? You kidding me? The picture of the guy who took her is the spitting image of old Herzog. The SOB always liked little girls. You think your partner took Michaela Garrett? Sorry, Wesley, I, I can't just take you at your word. I'll do you one better. I'll lead you to her body. I'll lead you to a whole bunch of bodies. And why would you do that? Well, I'll do it for a price. Sources differ on the exact amount, but for his help, Shermantine asked to be paid anywhere from $20,000 to $33,000, which he planned to leave to his sons. The state refused to pay Shermantine, instead offering to commute his death sentence to life behind bars. Inexplicably, Shermantine declined the offer, but he still led officers to a well in Linden, California, that contained over 1,000 bones and belongings he claimed came from his and Herzog's victims. A bone that appeared to belong to a child was found amongst the others. Extensive DNA testing was performed on it, comparing it to a sample of Michaela's DNA. Unfortunately, the DNA did not match. The bones did not belong to Michaela. To make the investigation even more difficult, in 2012, only two years after his release, Lauren Herzog committed suicide. It had been speculated that Herzog couldn't bear to live with Shermantine's betrayal. Ultimately, Herzog's suicide means that Herzog can never tell us if he killed Michaela. He has become yet another possible suspect in the case, with no evidence to prove his involvement. Without any definitive answers, the case file of Michaela Joy Garrett has remained in limbo. Law enforcement still welcomes any new leads on this decades-old case. Despite the grim nature of her situation, Michaela's mother, Sharon, has somehow held out hope. On her blog, she lists details of her missing daughter's case. Her leading theory is that Michaela fell victim to human traffickers. This theory is boosted by strangers across the world who write to Sharon's blog, reporting unverified sightings of Michaela in countries as close as Mexico and as far away as the United Arab Emirates. Sharon has clung to these reports and the slim chance that her daughter is still alive. And yet, with all these possibilities, after all these years, all we're left with is the question. Who really kidnapped Michaela Joy Garrett? Well, there definitely isn't a shortage of suspects. For example, the man we referred to as Grant McCannon has faced a litany of accusations that suggest his involvement in the disappearance of Michaela, not to mention multiple other children. We also have serial killer Curtis Dean Anderson. Anderson had a proven history of kidnapping and sexually abusing young girls, and he would have been driving the right type of car at the time of Michaela's abduction. Perhaps the most heinous criminals in our lineup are Philip and Nancy Garrido. The couple was responsible for the kidnapping, rape, and decades-long abuse of 11-year-old J.C. Dugard. After their arrests in August of 2009, they were investigated for Michaela's case as well. And the speed freak killers are compelling suspects too. The serial killer duo was active in the 80s and 90s, and in 2012, Shermantine suggested that his partner Herzog was the one responsible for the kidnapping of Michaela Joy Garrett. However, Herzog took his own life before Shermantine's allegations could be proven. Personally, 
I think Curtis Dean Anderson is our most likely suspect. He was known for abducting and murdering girls the same age as Michaela. He drove a car that was very similar to the one the witnesses spotted at the scene. And he lived in the same area at the time of her abduction. You make a compelling case, but I'm not sure any of these suspects are our actual killers. Many of them are connected to the case through sheer coincidence, and that's not enough to convince me of their involvement. I think whoever took Michaela was likely never suspected at all. Unfortunately, we may never solve this mystery. Yet, just like Sharon Murch, we can still hold hope that Michaela might be discovered sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner, production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders is written by Edward Hamill and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Freddie Beckley, Mike Capozzi, Kathleen Nielsen, Carly Madden, Samantha Moore, Steve Pinto, and Manib Raymond. 